Welcome to The Science Show on Cambridge 105. Maybe you thought an aeroplane wing is always an aeroplane wing and a car tyre always has zigzags all on its edge. But who can say different? The science of aerodynamics is who can say different. And today's guest is an engineer and a professor of aerodynamics and he'll be cluing us into what we gain from wind tunnel experiments on aeroplane wings and Olympic skiers. We'll hear from him in just a minute or two. We'll also catch you up on some science news, asking, can money buy you happiness? And should we be eating more fish? We'll tell you the scientific answers in a little bit. And we'll tell you about a neat way to learn science in the pubs around Cambridge, coming up after this bit of a tune. This is The Science Show on Cambridge 105, the community radio in your city. We start with a hello from me, Roger Frost. And a hello from me, Chris Kreese. We have 30 minutes of science, and by science, I mean exciting things they never told us about in school. All with a very special focus on the science that happens here in Cambridge. And in recent shows, you might have spotted the topic of engineering popping up more than once. In one show, we looked at bioengineering, where they study materials like gels in our joints. In another show, we looked at the engineering effort that goes into making a battery-powered, low-pollution car. Yep, and there are podcast recordings on the Cambridge 105 website to prove that. Mm -hmm. There's another engineering-based show in the weeks ahead too, right, Roger? That's right. But this week, we wanted to find out about aerodynamics and what it involves. I mean, what do they do? Surely, I thought, the flow of air over objects is something they would work out using computer programs, Mm. but apparently not, as Professor Holger Babinski from Cambridge University Engineering Department will explain just shortly. At the end of my chat with him, 10 minutes from now, I asked a jokey question about what attracted Holger to a career in engineering. And all you need to bear in mind is that there were and there continue to be so few women studying engineering. And that was my little bit of a jokey thing. (laughs) And with that, let's have a listen. I'm Professor of Aerodynamics in the Department of Engineering here at the University. And in the field of aerodynamics, I specialize in experimental techniques. So I don't do so much computer simulations of flows. I actually do experiments. I put models in wind tunnels. And I study things like aircraft, aircraft wings, but also cars, wind energy, all kinds of practical airflow problems. Recently, you were talking about a new design of aeroplane wing. Well, I was talking about bumps. So... I was explaining that it is that there is a lot of research going on at the moment looking into the possibility of putting little bumps like little dents on the top of an aircraft wing to deal with one particular problem uh, that one encounters which which we call wave drag mm-hmm. and obviously right now if you look on a wing they don't have bumps but because the aircraft industry is looking into, as you say, rightly reshaping the wing a little bit to gain a benefit in one area, which we call friction drag, that brings with it potentially, not necessarily, but, but it's quite likely that that would bring with it an increase in wave drag. And so now we need something to deal with this increased wave drag. And those bumps that I was talking about might be able to help us with that. 
Transonic, supersonic, what do these terms mean? They do crop up now and then. They do. It would be nice to know. It relates to how fast a flow is relative to the speed of sound. So we have subsonic, which means it's a flow that is slower than the speed of sound. So that would be the flow around your car. We have supersonic, which is when things move faster than the speed of sound. So that would be fighter aircraft that fly very fast. Concorde was supersonic. But then we have transonic, and transonic means through the speed of sound, so it's anything in the range of the speed of sound. And modern transport aircraft, the ones we take when we go on holiday, they operate in this transonic regime. They fly at approximately 80 to 85% of the speed of sound. They're still subsonic, but they're nudging up to what some people call the sound barrier. And that means that because the flow speeds up, as it goes over the wing, that's what we need to create lift, we actually locally have flow that moves faster than the speed of sound relative to the aircraft. Okay, take us back to basics. What does an aeroplane wing do? An aeroplane wing obviously creates lift. So that's what carries the aircraft. And and it's basically, it is shaped in such a way that the flow over the wing is is slightly curved. If you were to draw a cross-section and you drew streamlines, you would find that they are curved, particularly on the upper surface. And it's that curvature that causes pressure and velocity changes. And in particular on a wing, you're creating a low pressure above the wing and a high pressure below. And that gives you a net pressure force upwards and that's lift. Okay. When the pioneers of aeroplanes designed an aeroplane wing, they had no idea what this was about or am I they did, actually. In the late 19th century, there, there was a German, uh, Otto von Lilienthal, who built gliders. Uh, other people built gliders too, but what made him special is that he used a lot of systematic experiments. He built rigs, one of them is what you'd call a whirling arm, where he put little aerofoil cross-sections on, and he got those from observations of birds. And he wrote a, a classic textbook, which is based on bird wings and he experimented with bird-like aerofoil shapes and and measured their lift and measured their drag and that was one of the vital resources for the Wright brothers when they built their wings and and their aircraft and the Wright brothers took it one step further they built the first wind tunnels for aeronautics and and then they also put wings in wind tunnels and measured lift and drag and they used that to inform their design. So there's clearly more to it. I mean, if I had invented a wheel, I, I, I couldn't think of a way of really doing much to it to make mm. it work any better. And then I start with my aeroplane and I think of a flat sheet of plywood and then off I go. Yes, but actually if you look at the Wright Brothers flyer, it's not just a sheet of fabric. They had little, like, battens to give it a, a fairly careful shape. They didn't get everything right. There's a few physical effects they just simply didn't know about. But they used their own wind tunnel experiments to to design that shape, and that's what they put in the wing. And and there was quite a lot of fundamental research that went into the design of that. Okay, that's interesting to know. So how do you get to the idea that an aeroplane wing might be better with bumps on? Uh, That's not a quick story. First and foremost, if I go back to to what I said before, that the flow speeds up over the upper surface of the wing, and that because we're flying at slightly below the speed of sound, that now means that there is a patch of flow that is supersonic on the wing. We we never know about it, but it is actually there. And because the flow is locally supersonic on the wing, but then has to slow down again towards the back of the wing and, and when it returns to the 
normal, what we call the free stream condition. Supersonic flow doesn't just simply slow down gently. In supersonic flow, the physics change and we get new effects. And one of those new effects is a shock wave. And what happens on a wing of a transonic aircraft is that from the leading edge, so that's the front, if we're following the flow on the upper surface, we find that it accelerates, it becomes supersonic. And then somewhere at the halfway mark, it encounters a shock wave, which immediately returns the flow back. It slows it down back to subsonic flow, and then it flows off towards the rear of the wing. And it's that shock wave that is a loss of kinetic energy. It, it converts mechanical energy into heat. So it's like a friction process, and that causes drag. And the reason why this drag occurs is because this shock wave is not a gentle slowing down of the flow, but a very sudden, abrupt slowing down. That's why it's called a shock wave. And, and we think of shocks as being something abrupt. If you can now do something to, to make this shock wave more gentle, you can reduce wave drag. And so the idea was, when people looked at it, both here and elsewhere, is how can we make this slowing down of the flow, spread it over a, a slight area. And one idea is to slow it down a little bit ahead of the shockwave. And how do you do that? And we figured out that by pushing from the surface upwards into the flow, that is also a slight compression, which is what a shockwave is, but it is a compression ahead of the shock. And the result of it makes the shock, it smears it over a, a small area. And that is the fundamental idea of a bump. An aeroplane is in different situations throughout taking off, flying along under certain conditions, flying along under another conditions. Mm. But you're being asked to make an aeroplane wing which is right for everything. That's a very good question. That is quite right. So as you go through the flight regime, during cruise, which is the, the standard operation at altitude, you do fly at a relatively constant speed, but the aircraft gets lighter and lighter as we're burning fuel. So it needs to produce less and less lift. And so quite rightly, as you said, the flow actually changes between the beginning of cruise and the end of cruise, as a result of which the flow changes and the shock changes and moves position. And one of the big challenges of designs like this bump device is that in, a, in an ideal world, it would have to move. And that's possible, but it would increase the weight of the wing and the complexity and almost certainly lead to an overall reduction of efficiency which is why we don't have these devices on wings now. So one of the research areas we're looking at here is to think of particular bump shapes that are a little bit more what we call robust, that can operate over a range of shock positions, for example, over a range of flow conditions. But that's quite difficult. Do you ever walk around Mother Care and see something and think, oh, that was it, and that'll be your big story? I was walking around Mother Care, I saw a Dalek. I wish... But no, I didn't have a eureka moment. Like, like much research, it's very incremental. You, you take a lot of small steps. You don't have this nagging problem and then take one huge leap. It all feels very much like steady progress. Okay. What degree subject most leads you into this area of work? And I think there's a connected question. But what school topic still becomes very useful to you? Well, the degree subject is engineering in general. Uh, aeronautical engineering, if you want to be precise, but actually all forms of engineering contribute to this kind of research. And the school topic that's the most useful probably is still mathematics, then physics. But mathematics is the language of science, it's the language of engineering. 
And being able to think in a mathematical way is incredibly useful, and, and I use that all the time to this day. Is there a particular equation? Calculus. So understanding differentiation and integration and how it applies and, and how we use it in the real world is, is really important. Okay. And yet you said that your workplace is a practical workplace as well. Yes, even though yeah, my work is experimental, we still use, just in, in how we build our understanding, we use mathematics, sometimes even without realising. I mentioned calculus, which to me is, is one of the most important parts of math. And calculus is where you learn how gradients affect things, how things are driven by gradients, by slopes. And that is very much part of the physical understanding of, of an airflow. And so even just looking at a flow, we, in our head, effectively perform mathematical calculations. You mentioned at the beginning, other than aeroplanes, technologies, did you mention lorries? Yes, we do work on lorries. In fact, we're having a project with Waitrose. They've just built some prototype trailers with some very subtle aerodynamic modifications which arose from a number of student projects we've had here. I have and still occasionally work with Formula One teams. I've worked on wind energy. But you could be seduced into sports. Quite right. We've had the UK speed skiing team in our wind tunnel and tried to help them improve their posture. We built a device so they could see in real time what their drag was and so they could learn to position themselves right. We have a few projects to do with cycling. Aerodynamics is quite a big part of that too. For many years I worked with a company making kites for kite surfing and we helped them design better kites. So yeah, aerodynamics is a pretty wide field. When you get on an aeroplane, do you look around you with confidence? Oh, absolutely, yes. Is there a best place to sit on an aeroplane? Well, I, I spoke about the shockwave, which is on the wing, and the supersonic flow, and we can't see it because, of course, air is transparent. But if you sit over the wing and the sun is just right, then you can see the footprint of the shockwave, and it's, it's always there, and, and people don't notice it because they're not looking for it. But when air changes pressure and temperature, then it changes its optical properties. And in sunlight, we can sometimes see that. If you have sunlight coming in through a window, look where it hits the wall and, and put a lighter in its path and just see what and you can see the hot air from the lighter. And in the same way, you can see a shockwave. If the sun is perfectly aligned with the shock, then you can see on the wing the footprint of the shock. And, and that's something I like to look for. And if you're landing on a humid day when air is prone to condensation, then as the high lift devices come out, you can see lots of vortices and, and flow features where, where you get this white mist. And yeah, I, I still enjoy that. I still can't help looking out for it when I'm sitting in an aircraft. How did you get to here? What sent you in the direction of physics? I was, like most boys, always fascinated by engineering-related topics. I also always had a natural knack for mathematics. I was one of those people who are lucky enough that mathematics comes easy to them. Yeah. I don't think my math teacher was terribly inspiring, but then my physics teacher was. And so I really enjoyed physics at school. And so ultimately, it was a relatively logical path into engineering and aerospace engineering, and that really set me off on, on my career. So you weren't attracted by any women in there? 
business. That was almost the answer I was going to give you, but <laughs> there is there? a yes, absolutely, because I did while I studied aerospace engineering in Germany, I dropped aerodynamics as my options as I was getting to the later stages of my degree, but I had then met a woman from England. And under the German system, as an undergraduate, you have to do one or two research projects, and it's quite common to do them outside your university. So I was desperate to find somewhere to do it in England because of my girlfriend. And by a sheer fluke, I was offered a project in high-speed aerodynamics, which was very convenient to where my girlfriend lived. And so I quickly relearned all my aerodynamics and moved to Cranfield to do my project. And they then offered me a place to do a PhD. And so that is what shifted my career into aerodynamics. And the girlfriend is now my wife. It's fantastic. So it's all a big love story. <laughs> Thank you very much. Holger. You're welcome. That was Professor Holger Babinski talking to our Roger Frost about the role of aerodynamics in engineering. Indeed, yes. As uh, Holger said, their work involves doing experiments in wind tunnels to build a picture of airflow over wings. Now, that's difficult to visualise at the best of times, and it's even mm. more difficult to visualise on radio here. <laughs> but Chris, did you know, or do you know, how aeroplane wing actually creates the lift that gets the aeroplane off the ground and into the air? Ah, well, I think kids were all taught about the Bernoulli's principle, right, at school. But since you're the physical scientist, and I see you've got a glint in your eye over there, perhaps you'd like to tell us. Yeah, well, there's cheekiness in that question, <laughs> because if you look up the explanation on the internet, you will read that we've all been taught that the air on the curved upper surface of the wing has to travel further than the air underneath wing surface, mm -hmm. meaning there's a kind of, it has to catch up with the air on the other side. In fact, the real explanation has nothing to do with this. It's to do with the fact that the curvature of the wing causes a change in air pressure, which is different above the wing than it is below it. Ah, oh, gotcha. Well, oversimplification leading science students astray, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But if you do a search now for how aeroplane wings really work, you will quickly find our guest, Holger Babinski, and a story and a YouTube video, which is pretty good to watch. And I think it brilliantly shows what's going on in this uh, aeroplane wing situation. <laughs> Excellent. And as a final cheeky, cheeky word, I'd just like to add my advice to the Olympic ski team, all well, the Olympics are over now, to improve their streamlining and performance. All right, what's that, Roger? Stay off donuts. Ah, boom, boom, ching. You're listening to The Science Show on Cambridge 105. Now for a quick catch-up on some breaking science news. So, Roger... Do you think money can buy us happiness? Well, Chris, this is a loaded, amazing question. You <laughs> should be asking me lots there. Um, I think money helps you to, to do the things that you enjoy. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think being able to afford enjoyable experiences is quite great. But new research from San Francisco State University mm -hmm. suggests that for some people, the answer is no. Okay, tell well, I shall quote professor of psychology and co-author of the study, Ron Rowell. He says that everyone has been told if you spend your money on life experiences, it will make you happier. 
But we found that isn't always the case. He goes on to explain that in the past, researchers found a strong link between happiness and what they call experiential purchases. Okay, experiential purchases. I think that means spending money on enjoyable experiences. Mm-hmm. So you go for a cookery course, you do some skydiving, you ride a zip wire, you taste some wine. <laughs> yes. You, you could go on. All great examples, exactly right. But Professor Rowell points out that there's been little research in into the types of people who experience no benefits at all. Uh, well, this sounds very bleak study, this is Chris, but go on. <laughs> well, someone's got to do it, right, Roger? Right, yeah, yeah. So the researchers surveyed shoppers to figure out if there were any limitations on that happiness boost that we get when we pay to have a very nice experience, such as, oh, I don't know, buying tickets for a football match. Mm-hmm. So these uh, 105 sport football fans in the show after us, they're going to be happy with that? Yeah. So what sort of results did this have we found so far? Well, bluntly, it's not true that everyone will feel happier if they invest their money into life experiences. It really depends on the values of the buyer. So, for instance, the researchers found that for people spending a lot of money on material items, there was no happiness boost from experiential purchases. Okay, I relate to that very well. So if you only really care about sort of what material things you have such as what kind of car you drive mm-hmm. uh, you will not jump for joy about the idea of uh, an expensive holiday in the Seychelles but. yes well I would jump for joy for an expensive holiday okay, in the Seychelles okay, okay. that sounds quite grand but yeah you've got it right so th- what this suggests is that if we're really smart about how we spend our money on the things that are in line with our identity it can make us happy so money can make us happy uh, Professor Rowell says if the reason to spend money is to maximize happiness, the best thing for that person to do is to purchase a life experience that is in line with their personality. Okay, so for me, this encourages a shopping spree. <laughs> Uh-oh, hide the cards. Uh-huh. <laughs> well, yeah, there's also an opportunity I should mention too for us to become citizen scientists okay. because everyone's invited to learn more about how their spending habits are affecting their happiness by contributing to this research program. Okay, thanks, Chris. So uh, from these notes here, it looks like you go to this website beyond the purchase.org to join yes. in the research. Yes, that's the one. And if you're keen to read the paper, it's coming out June in the Journal of Research in Personality. Journal of Research in Personality. They could do a whole volume on me. <laughs> yes, in the best sense, Roger. Oh, yeah, yeah. But do you think there's a, a kind of a personality that gains happiness from giving other people things. So, for example, if I bought you a new car or a jump from a parachute type experience, Mm -hmm. would that make you happy, more happy, shall we say, than if I bought it for you myself? Well, I can't afford either. So, yes, I'd be very happy if you gave me a BMW, Roger. (laughs) Thank Uh. you. Please do. (laughs) You're listening to The Science Show on Cambridge 105. Chris, you've got another news story, I think, there. Yes, you were so eager to get to it, Roger. That's fantastic. You bet. So this one is a little bit fishy. Okay. So you know how we're told to get healthy hearts by eating lots of fish with omega fatty acids? Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, Well, I had some salmon for lunch, so that fits, yeah, good Mm. for me. Well, first, yum. Second, the Canadian Journal of Cardiology just came out with a study that questions those recommendations. Oh, no. So this is science for you, always questioning something. Indeed. The guidelines for eating oily fish are based in part on a landmark study from the 1970s. You might have seen this, Roger. Mm -hmm. It surmised that the Eskimos of Greenland had lower rates of coronary artery disease, which we'll 
we'll just call heart disease, because of their fish-rich diet. Okay. But it turns out that the disease and mortality data from that study was seriously flawed. Oh, no. Well, so that means the paper is only as good as this data. So how flawed was this? Yes, well, a lot of the population studied, perhaps unsurprisingly, was in remote areas. Okay. And deaths were often reported without examination by doctors. So what this means is that heart problems were massively underreported. Oh, dear. So do they've got some better data now? Uh, yet yeah, they do, or at least they claim to. The newest data suggests very high rates of mortality due to strokes in the population and also that Greenland Eskimos are just as vulnerable to heart disease as everyone else. Oh, yeah. And actually, if you look at their life expectancy, it's about 10 years less than the rest of the local population, though I hasten to add that that could be for many reasons unrelated to diet. Okay, so what does it all mean, really? Well, Dr. Fedor, one of the study's authors, said, and this is a quote, considering the dismal health status of Eskimos, it is remarkable that instead of labeling their diet as dangerous to health, a hypothesis has been construed that dietary intake of marine fats prevents heart disease. And I was planning to have a, a salmon for dinner again. Oh, you like your salmon. And now I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah, it's a good reminder, isn't it, that if two patterns are associated, it doesn't necessarily mean that one causes the other, which in science we say correlation does not equal causation. So there's a tip to scientists to go and check their data. Mm-hmm. And it means, too, I'm still unconvinced, actually, one way or the other by this latest paper. And I think I'm going to wait to see results of more experiments that directly measure heart disease and fish consumption together in the same patients. I think that's the way to go. Mm-hmm. So in the meantime, I'm just going to eat my fish in moderation. Sounds very sensible, Chris. And we just got enough time to tell you about some happenings around the town. Yes, first up are the Pint of Science dates, where you can learn about science with a pint at the pub. Here in Cambridge, there will be talks from the 19th to 21st May at the Portland Arms. The topics include hacking our senses, the aging brain, and how to keep it fit. Uh, Also, modifying memories. To learn more and book your tickets, check out pintofscience.com. Thanks, Chris. I like this idea of learning in the pub. Well, uh, on Monday the 19th of May, also at half past seven, there's a talk with the title of Molecular Gastronomy, Science of Taste and Flavour, with no description of what it's about, but it's by Professor (laughs) Peter Baum from the University of Bristol. That's Monday the 19th of May, 7.30 at Churchill College. Mm, Sounds fun. On Thursday, 15th May at 7pm, there's a controversial sounding talk called 2050 Sustainable UK. The idea is that the world continues to rely on fossil reserves encouraged by cheap methane from fracking and new oil discoveries. However, I guess the idea is that the talk by Dr. John Emsley He thinks that this can only lead, really, to disaster for the planet. And he questions if the green solution is truly a better alternative because he thinks that organic farming and natural materials just can't feed, clothe and house the 9 billion humans there will be by 2050. He argues for a third way to provide a modern lifestyle, secure food supply, clean water, transport fuel, and healing drugs, polymers, comfortable home, you name it. And this third way, he thinks, uses chemistry to provide a sustainable future using renewable resources for the chemical 
agrochemical and pharmaceutical industries. Creating such a world, he thinks, will require dedicated young chemists to make it possible. Leading science author, writer and broadcaster Dr. John Emsley says there is an elephant in the room. He will explore the possible solutions that science can offer and explain how the UK might even set an example to the world. So that's on 15th May at 7pm. You can check that out at the Department of Chemistry on Lensfield Road. It's free and open to all, including school parties, and there are no tickets, so just arrive early to get a good seat. Okay, and also quite soon, that's this coming Monday, 5th of May, there's a talk about advances in research and the practice of tunnelling under city. As we know, urban congestion is a serious problem in many cities, so the suggestion is that we create underground space and have underground transport. But how can we start to build tunnels in such a way that they're not going to affect the buildings above them? Mm-hmm. What might get in the way? What sort of engineering will help in that respect? Well, that's what it's all about. It's by Professor Robert Mayer in the Department of Engineering on Monday the 5th of May, 7.30 at Churchill College. But that's pretty much all we have for this week's science show on Cambridge 105. In a few days' time, you will to pick up a podcast of the show on our website, which is... Cambridge105.fm. Thank you. Thanks, Roger. And you can now pick up our podcast on iTunes. Just search for 105 Science. Our next show on Cambridge 105 will be in two weeks on Saturday, 17th May, at our new special summer time of 5.30pm. So mark that in your diaries. Okay, well, that's summertime. If you want a reminder of all that, you can follow us on Twitter at 105Science. And if you have a science event to promote or anything of that nature, please email us, science at Cambridge. 105.fm And that leaves us to say many thanks to Professor Holger Babinski. So I'll say bye from me, Chris Kreese. And bye from me, Roger Frost. Up next is the team from 105 Sport. Mm-hmm.